Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. And so Dr. Pennington, as he looks at the use of this word, as he looks at the terms and the ideas that it connects with throughout church history and what the gospel writer Matthew is trying to do here and what Jesus is likely doing here, Dr. Pennington says the beatitude should be understood as grace-based wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. In other words, they are truisms about what it means to live the good life before God. They are proverbs of a sort about how we live as God intended us to live in a world that does not experience its original state. How do we seek after God and how do we angle our hearts and model our lives after Christ in a world in which we experience, as we just sung, Sin and temptation, the fallenness and brokenness of humanity and the world. And so it's contrary to everyone's expectations when Jesus says, the good life begins here, that you are poor in spirit, and that you learn to mourn that poverty, and that in mourning that poverty, you experience meekness welling up inside. This morning, we're going to take some time and we're going to think about this and think about, in particular, what it means to be meek. How is it that meekness directs our hearts towards the good life? So let us pray as we consider the blessedness of meekness. Father in heaven, as our two sisters just read and instructed and prayed, we do say, indeed, holy is your name. We ask, Lord, for your kingdom to come. Father, I want to admit, even now, as I prepare to give this sermon, that as I have studied for it, I am aware that what I'm about to say is as much for me as it is for anyone else listening. I am not meek like Jesus, but I long to look like him. In honesty, Father... I am at times uncomfortable by the prospect of what meekness might mean in my life, but I know that you are good. I want your kingdom to come. I want it to advance in my heart, in my mind, as well as in the hearts and minds of the people you have gathered here this morning. And as well as in the hearts and minds of all those gathered today in the gospel-proclaiming true churches of Tucson. We want to see a culture shaped by the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And so we want you and your will. We want your will to be done here on earth, which means we must become meek, like Christ is meek. And so we pray that your kingdom come and that your will be done. We pray this day that you give us your daily bread that you feed us with your word as we meditate on and consider blessedness and meekness and the promise of an inherited earth. Feed us from this text this morning. Enliven and nourish our spirits. Forgive us our debts. Teach us to forgive. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. 
Father, deliver us from our enemies of Satan, of the temptations of a fallen and sinful world, and certainly from the indwelling flesh, the sin which we wrestle with daily. So, Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we will focus in on meekness. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning I want to consider what meekness is, why the meek are blessed, or how the meek are blessed, and how we might become more meek. Well, what is meekness? In terms of defining the word, I think it has two sides to it. On side A, we might say is in regard to God. To be meek toward God is to submit to his wisdom and instruction. And that might seem pretty obvious and maybe easy in a sense. Hey, we're all in church. Maybe we got that one down. Well, actually, both in and outside the church, we regularly encounter the desire to pass judgment upon God. Uh, in my days before I was a pastor, I was a high school teacher, and I taught high school Bible at a Christian high school. It was open enrollment, so not all of the students in it were Christian. In fact, it was probably about 50-50 in terms of those who professed Christ and those who didn't. I actually taught a class that was for, um, well, we were, it was thought of as like the heathen New Testament class, because there was the New Testament class that was called New Testament Discipleship, and it was marketed as, hey, if you're a sophomore in high school and you are on fire for Jesus, Jesus, take this class. If not, go hang out with Mr. Hurst. So I taught high school Bible to, uh, to sophomores and juniors, and then Christian ethics to seniors. And in my days as a high school teacher, uh, I came in having pre been prepared from seminary uh, to do apologetics by answering three basic questions. Can I prove that God exists? Can I prove that the Bible is true? And can I prove that Jesus rose from dead? And then as I encountered some brilliant and thoughtful and heartbroken high schoolers, I realized the questions I had been prepared to answer were not the questions they were asking. The questions I had been prepared to answer belonged to a previous era in which objective fact, what is true and what is false, ruled everything. And if you found out something was true, you tried to align your life with it. If you found out something was false, you tried to reject it in your life. 
And yet the high schoolers I worked with did not first and foremost care if God existed. They first and foremost cared if God was good. Don't tell me his name. Don't tell me what he's about. Don't tell me his book until you can prove to me that God is good. And secondly, that God's existence makes sense of my experience. I first encountered these questions being asked them by a student of mine who took my classes sophomore, junior, and senior year. She's one of my favorite students. She's brilliant. She's funny with a, an edgy kind of dark humor. And in her senior year, taking my Christian ethics class, she knew that we were going to encounter the topic of homosexuality. So after school one day, she came in with another student of mine who's a close friend of hers. And she began to explain to me that she experienced same-sex attraction and understood herself to be gay. Over the course of the conversation, what followed was a discussion about what she believed about God, how she experienced him, and how she was trying to understand who she was identifying as a same-sex attracted person. This conversation was fairly formative to me, so I could actually recount much of it from memory right now before you, but suffice it to say this, that she believed in God on and off having been raised in a Catholic home. That she had encountered in my New Testament classes arguments for and against the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and she had come to believe that the tomb of Jesus was in fact empty, and that the two best explanations for that were either that he rose from the dead or a series of so random and odd occurrence of events that nobody could reconstruct history in order to prove either way. So she rejected the concept that the disciples had stolen the body, that the Romans had misplaced the body, that the body was never buried. She had said the best argument for the empty tomb is that that Jewish carpenter walked out of it three days after they put him in it. And yet she sat before me with her friend at her left shoulder, near tears, trying to understand how the God that I proclaimed that her parents believed that she had been raised as a Catholic to trust in, how he could challenge her with something like same-sex attraction. I was trying to be compassionate, but everything inside of me cried out that what she was missing was that she was putting God on trial. The question of whether God was right or wise was hers to adjudicate, not God's to explain. C.S. Lewis calls this putting God in the docks, and he writes in a famous essay, that the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as an accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the docks. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the kind of God who permits war and poverty and disease, then man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You see, when we put God in the dock, we do not listen to his wisdom and instruction. We do not position ourselves as the meek before him. 
We require God to account for why the world is the way it is and why our experience is what our experience is. We look at the injustice of the world and we say to God, explain this to me such that you can justify yourself. I've known many people, myself included, who have come out of a place like that where searching the scriptures and trying to understand who God is, we put God on trial. I know from my friends who have come out of this place, and I can speak personally for myself, God is not having any of that. I have a notebook full of questions that I asked as I encountered scripture, trying to figure out what I believed and why I believed it, and I will tell you this day that the questions that I wrote down, the vast majority of them remain unanswered. Quite frankly, because it seems as I came to trust in Jesus Christ, God just was not concerned with the same things I was concerned with. I put him on trial, and he turned the question right back on me. How do you justify this experience? The side A of meekness is that we position ourselves in submission to God's wisdom and instruction. Side B, then, is in regard to others. To be meek in regard to others is to be humble, gentle, considerate of them, not self-important. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. talks about us not thinking of ourselves as better than others, but considering others before ourselves. And when we grasp that, we can realize how Jesus is fitting these beatitudes together such that they present a flow, a coherent picture, not that they are individual descriptions of individual persons, but each one is a building a a character trait which leads to the next. And so Jesus, speaking to an audience of Jews who already believed in God, who already believed they were made by God and for God, In a sense, we could say that they would have agreed with the Westminster Confession of Faith, a historic Christian document, which explains what is the chief or primary purpose of mankind. And the answer is to enjoy God and glorify him forever and ever. The Jews that were hearing Jesus would have agreed with that statement, yet they would have recognized their failure to live to that purpose having been presented daily with sacrifices in the temple for their sins, having been surrounded occasionally with the religious teachers and lawyers, they would have understood that the reason that these things exist is because they have failed to adhere to that purpose. And so Jesus presents them with the good life. And he says, the good life begins with recognizing your poverty before God. With recognizing the purpose of these sacrifices and these religious leaders. Mourning that poverty. Entering into it in a sense of grief. For I have fallen short of God's will. And that, in a sense, is the root of the Christian faith and the shoot that springs up from it the stock of the plant would then be a meek disposition. So on side A, we might say that a sense of submission of the one, to the one who created me, who rescued me, and who said he would lead me. Even when I may not understand what God asks or requires, 
but I submit to him because I know that he is good and his word is wise. I mean, think about this. I love Psalm 19, 7 through 14. When I struggle with doubt, here's one of the places I personally go. Because it tells me that the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. That the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his error? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. And so the psalmist prays, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Meekness to God is accepting that the testimony of the word of God is sure and submitting to it. Which, as we just sung, doesn't mean not doubting. I'm actually pretty comfortable with doubts, and if I'm comfortable with them, I'm pretty certain God's probably comfortable with them because he knows the answers far better than I do. It doesn't mean not expressing confusion or a lack of clarity. If you read through the Psalms, you find a man who again and again is seeing what is in front of him, is looking at his Torah, his Bible, and he is trying to figure out, Lord, what is it that you are doing? How is it that you have allowed me to be surrounded by my enemies? Why is the world the way it is? And he expresses this confusion and a lack of clarity about his situation and about his understanding of what God is doing. And yet you find in them a man who is pursuing with faithfulness that God, and he is submitting to his word. On the side B, then, it means a sense of gentleness because we have recognized our own sin. And so we cannot be harsh with others. It means as well, because we recognize our own sin, a sense of humility because we cannot think of ourselves as better than others. I like to think of it this way. When you sing a song like Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me my Savior or I die. If you can sing that song, how on earth could you look around at anybody around you with any sense of pride? Pride flourishes when it is done by comparison. But that song doesn't say, I was moderately clothed and I came to you for a better dress. It says, we all naked came to him for dress. We all vile went to him to be washed clean. And so there is no pride of comparison in the heart of the Christian. The body and blood of Jesus Christ is what we all need. And we proclaim this together. Every time we take communion, we ought to be wiping out every sense of pride that the fleshly heart tries to put in us.
I would be remiss if I talked about meekness and I didn't point out as well that Jesus, though he was sinless, was meek too. You know, if you have been with us or visited us in the last 18 months, odds are you have received or had an opportunity to take a copy of the book Gentle and Lowly. In it, uh, Dane Ortland, the author, reflects on what Matthew 11, 28 through 30 means. This is Jesus' own self-description, and Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, for Jesus, is gentle. It's the same word in Matthew 5, 5 for meek, for I am meek and lowly in my heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ortland in Gentle and Lowly writes this, when Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle or meek and lowly. What does it mean that Jesus is meek? Orland continues on, that the Greek word translated gentle here occurs three other times in the New Testament. In the first beatitude, that the meek will inherit the earth. In the prophecy of Matthew 21, 5, that Jesus the king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And in Peter's encouragement to wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Meek, humble, gentle, Jesus is not trigger-happy, he is not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not the pointed finger, but the open arms. This is a quality as well that Paul lists among a bunch of other qualities, when he says that we are to put on a garment which is the character of Jesus Christ, and he lists it in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I read that whole thing because I wanted you to notice something, that meekness cannot be if we are to take on those characteristics of Christ. Meekness is not, is not silent permissiveness. Such a disposition could never be coupled with the peace of Christ. Some of you might know this if you have friends who are parents of a wayward child, and there's a silent permissiveness of, well, you've just got to let them make their own mistakes. Yes, to a certain extent, but you, do you sense the peace of Christ in that moment? 
Meekness is not letting other brothers and sisters in the faith make their own mistakes. Otherwise, it would be negated by the entreaty to teach and admonish one another. Nor can meekness be the allowance of the false religion or harm. Otherwise, meekness could not be compared to Christ who, in John 2, enters the temple, jealous for his father's worship. John 2, 13 through 15 says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I should say that we need to be careful with a text like this. I am not saying and not giving permission for you to go start flipping dining room tables over in your friends' houses who you think are apostate or in a cult or something like that. Jesus is flipping tables over and running people out of the temple, doesn't give you permission to blow up on somebody. My point is that godly jealousy is totally and completely compatible with Christ-like meekness. So what is it to be meek? One commentator sums it up well. He says this, meekness is another word for self-effacement. We should not miss the point that all three of the opening Beatitudes, the truth is brought that the follower of Jesus does not aggressively insist on his or her own rights, but displays genuine humility. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness. The meek are not simply submissive because they lack the resources to be anything else. Meekness is quite compatible with great strength and ability as humans measure strength and ability. But whatever strength or weakness the meek person has is accompanied by a humility and a genuine dependence upon God. Self-assertion is never a Christian virtue. Rather, it is Christian to be busy in lowly service of one another and to refuse to engage in the conduct that merely advances one's own personal aims. Now, I realize, even as I prepared this sermon, I thought about all the ways in which commending meekness makes me worried in a world that seems increasingly adversarial to what I believe. And so I could not get around the question, how is it that the meek are blessed? What is it that makes meekness a source of happiness? Well, simply put, Christ says, they receive the earth. And here he's drawing on Psalm 37. If you read it, Psalm 37 is a psalm of how David trusts God in spite of encountering the injustice of the present world. And so he says in Psalm 37, 1, fret not yourselves because evildoers be more envious of the wrongdoers. So he says, do not be uh, do not worry about the evildoers. Do not be envious of the wrongdoers. Psalm 37, 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend back their bows to bring down the poor and the needy and to slay those whose way is upright. Psalm 37, 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit... Or sorry, uh, no, that's right. Uh, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed shall be cut off. 
In Psalm 37, 32, the wicked watches for the righteous to seek to put him to death. But in the midst of that warning of injustice, David also writes these, Psalm 37, 10 through 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. In Psalm 37, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his ways, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. What's the point? The ultimate promise here is that they receive the earth, which means that they embrace and get the blessing of peace and rest. Again, that's the concept in terms of peace, of internal coherence. No longer being at war within yourselves. And rest, finding escape from the enemies, inheriting the land by which you are protected and dwell. In a world in which the statistics show us an increasing struggle with mental illness, an increasing concern about one's mental health. I think the promise that we can inherit the earth if we are but meek is a promise which we must take and reflect on again and again. You see, when we look around us, it seems to us that the bad guys consistently win. But the Lord sees and knows. The Lord is faithful and has a plan. And so we wait for him. We walk in his ways. We seek to resist temptation. And we await our home, which, by the way, cannot be taken from you. One commentator wrote, the meek are happy, deeply happy, in a way which the big-headed of our world can never aspire. You see, the background verse of Psalm 37:11, the meek will inherit the land, is revolutionary stuff. It says that the victory goes not to the wise or to the strong, but to those so small before God. That God can afford to exalt them without danger of their becoming proud. In this way, Psalm 37 echoes another passage that Christ likely has in mind when he begins to express the Beatitudes, and that is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the Lord knows those who pursue him. He blesses them. He plants them such that in season and out of season, their lives bear fruit. But it's important to notice this about meekness as well. The promise of inheriting the earth is future-oriented. 
That's why this morning we sang the song, We Are Almost Home. Friends, we are not there yet. The earth is not yet ours. We do not sense the peace and rest which God intends. Unlike the first beatitude, this one is in the future tense. When Jesus arrived in Mark 1, 15, it says, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That doesn't mean it's far away. That doesn't mean it's coming. That means it's literally here. And so Jesus brings the kingdom, but interestingly enough, Jesus does not bring it all the way. Theologians refer to this as the inaugurated kingdom, the already but not yet coming of God's kingdom. Why did he bring it only partially? There are many reasons, most of which I don't know. But I'm certain that there's at least one I do. And that is that God intended more people to hear the message of his kingdom. To hear the message of the rest and the peace available in the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. And to enter into his kingdom as citizens. And so Christ only brought it partially such that the gospel and the message of God could go forth to more and more people and the citizenship of the kingdom might grow increasingly. But one of the results of that is that in this liminal space between the age that was and the age where God brings his kingdom all the way most fully in that age, we now live. And in that age, we still struggle with sin and temptation. We still struggle with the injustices of Psalm 37. And so, Jesus says, if you are to understand how to be meek in this world, you must understand that the promise is future-oriented. We must be a people who set our eyes on the coming kingdom. Resisting the temptation to ground ourselves in what is happening merely in this world. Sometimes I worry that too many of us, that we think uh, subconsciously that this will be a problem. Maybe we've imbibed too much Johnny Cash. You're shining light, you're shining like you should, but you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Too bad Johnny never read mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis in it says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. One of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. In fact, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought the most about the next. The apostles themselves who set the foot of conversion to the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who brought the abolition to the slave trade left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied by heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and yes, you will get a little of earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. A contemporary pastor reflecting on this comment of Lewis's said, Yes, I know it's probably possible to be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. My problem is I've never met one of those people. 
I suspect if I've met any, the problem that I see is that our minds are not so full of the glories of heaven, but that our minds are empty and our mouths are full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world, it is not because he thinks too much about the next, but there are a hundred of useless Christians because they think too much about this one. We live in a time between the times where the kingdom of God might reign in our hearts, but it does not yet reign in our world. In this way, we are sojourners, we are travelers, we are aliens on the way. But the way is not geographic, it is chronological. Every single one of you, in a sense, is a time traveler. You just travel through time at the same pace as everybody else, moment by moment, traveling towards the coming kingdom of God. And so let me wrap up here with some applications about how we, and by we, I mostly mean myself, can be more meek. How can we pursue meekness? We can take injury well. We can understand the heart of God. And we can repay evil with good. Take injury well. Psalm 37 is pretty clear that this world is rough and that we will experience injustice. Since I'm slightly below the average age of our church, I'm pretty certain I don't need to tell you that. You have probably experienced it. For those of you who I'm above your age, you're Gen Z, which means you're really snowflakes, and so you've already probably been offended by something, so I also don't need to point out that this world is tough. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I joke because I love. I joke because I love. Some of you, though, have probably been hurt, in all seriousness, some of you have probably been hurt in church. Maybe even in this church. I get it. I've read the history. You guys can throw down. I will tell you, this church in the past has fought like no other church I have encountered. But I want to think back to that Colossians 3 passage I read. Because here's how we can take injury well. Do you see how many places uh, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, commends things that are primarily about our interaction with each other? If being in church was easy, he would not have said these. But look at this text. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. These are all about how we get along. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He goes on. The next slide, yeah. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's what I advise. And I need to hear this too. Don't think, take things so personally. 99 times out of 100, they were not meant that way and are probably not directed at you. Try to hear people's stories. You know, I, I uh, explained at the very top of my sermon 
uh, interaction I had with a particular high schooler. This high schooler, uh, she's now in college, but this high schooler <laughs> has a very dark, adversarial, and contentious set of sense of humor. It was through hearing her story that I could realize that was actually how she attempted to build relationships rather than to tear them down. Hear people's stories before you assume a particular meaning to their words. Resist a desire to respond hastily. In honesty, though, sometimes Ill, Ill intent is meant by it. Remember in that instance that you have no right to revenge. Scripture speaks clearly, vengeance is mine, saith not Tyler, not you, but the Lord. Let him judge between us. Let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts and let God be the judge. There are plenty other things I could say under the banner of taking injury well, but we'll leave it at that. Understand the heart of God. Going back to Ortland, Jesus is described with the same word, meek. Feel free, if you don't have one, grab a copy of Gentle and Lowly from us. We have them for free back there. Take that, read it, or better yet, read through the Gospels and see how Jesus positions himself towards others. Seek to understand in the character and interactions of Christ the heart of God, that he would think of a Savior who rather than coming first and foremost with a rod of triumph and a scepter of power came as a meek and lowly carpenter. The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek are so countercultural today. Every movie, show, and probably most songs reject them. Tim Keller explains that our culture is one based on self-esteem. He says, our belief today, and it is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave because of lack of self-esteem and because they, are too, they have too low a view of themselves. Counter that message which you will encounter everywhere. Counter it with the message of Scripture. And recognize that these qualities poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, though not valued in our culture, are in fact the characteristics of Christ that bring us into the kingdom. Why do the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven? Because the one who had access to the entire wealth of the kingdom of heaven came down, became poor, and hung on a cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is why the poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. Why will those who mourn be comforted? Because he who was made sin, though he knew no sin, he was made sin such that we might be comforted. He was not comforted in the, on the cross so that we could be comforted after it. Why did the meek inherit the earth? Because the earth belongs to the Son of God. And Romans 8, 16 through 17 says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside in each and every believer, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. If heirs of God, then we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Why do the meek receive the earth? Because the meek are co-heirs with the Son of God and the earth is what he gets. Finally, repay evil with good. This one's one of the hardest for me. As I have meditated over my Christian walk on the Sermon on the Mount, I have come back again and again to Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, one time, I uh, was asked to resign from a position. This is just by way of illustration to show you how bad I am at this. I have meditated many times on the Sermon on the Mount. I was asked to resign from a position in church, and I was confused. I was hurt. I was not sure what was going on, but I knew because of my meditations that I was to pray for this person who seemed to be positioning themselves as an adversary towards me. So I went to the Lord in prayer, and I prayed for him and his ministry. I prayed for his family and their good. I prayed for the church and that it would flourish. And then this little voice in the back of my head said, but you know, Lord, if he was bald and had a misshapen head at the end of all of this, I'd be fine with that. And it's because, because I struggle with this. Meekness is a characteristic of Jesus Christ. We are to pray for those who persecute us, not so that we can talk to God and vent our anger or something like that, but first and foremost because we are to repay evil with good. We are to be a people who went wrong like Christ when he hung on the cross, said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so, friends, take heart. For blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this message. It is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. And it's not countercultural, I am reminded, it is not countercultural just to be countercultural. It is countercultural because there is not a civilization or a culture on earth that understands and embraces fully your kingdom. And so, Father, teach us to be meek, teach us to mourn our sin. Not merely our sins, the things that we do, but the fact that the indwelling old man still lives inside us, that we still seek to put to death the work of Genesis 3 in our own hearts. Help us be poor in spirit, recognizing and taking joy that you, though wealthy, Father, you sent your son to become poor, that we might become rich in the riches of the kingdom. Bless us with this word and bless us as we sing. We thank you for this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.